Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports professor Rick Hara wins the $1.3 trillion business of sports. We're looking ahead for 2023. Last installment focused on the top 15 issues from 2022. Well, here we go for next year. Bigger than ever, the business well beyond $1.3 trillion, probably closer to $2 trillion, especially with gambling, esports, and otherwise in it. We also have a special guest this week to comment on injuries, perseverance, and all things NFL, Joe Theismann. We'll get to it about halfway through this podcast of the Top 15, so let's get started. Number 15, sports events in 2023 in Ohio, for example, expected to top $20 million in economic impact. Uh, the Jacobs Pavilion, the Women's Tennis Tournament, Greater Cleveland Sports Commission, Guardians, Cavaliers, Browns. It's not just Cleveland making this list. Point is, sports and economic impact is intertwined, and that's 15. Number 14, XFL returns to the big stage. The Rock's revitalization of the league means big things for 2023. All teams train in and around Arlington, Texas, play their games in their home markets versus what the USFL did. And oh, by the way, the USFL is set to kick off season two with an expanded opportunity that gives more credence and respect to their home markets. That's number 14. 13, LeBron James sits down with ESPN, and he's 38 years old. He wants to keep playing when he's 40. His bottom line is he wants to see if he can take the floor with Bronny, his boy. That's his deal. The first year in which Bronny is NBA draft eligible, 24-25, We'll see if he's a one-and-done talent at the college level. We don't know yet, but certainly take him seriously. That's number 13. Number 12, the NHL Winter Classic saw record sales in merchandise and support. St. Louis Blues and Minnesota Wild in 2022 from Target Field in Minneapolis. Now Fenways went up 61%, and the deal is this is a classic. Boston, obviously, big and all of their rivals. The Bruins jerseys mark the first time their outdoor sweaters had the city name and not the team's nickname, the logo under Boston that really drew interest and they will continue to build on this phenomenon. Number 12, number 11, Las Vegas expects big things this year following a dominant year's worth of huge events generating hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, Pro Bowl, Formula One, Grand Prix, WNBA title this last year, obviously the NFL draft this year, and not to mention the Super Bowl 58 and beyond. It is a big event town. Some permanent events will soon follow. That's number 11. Number 10, Kentucky making a heavy push to get into sports betting, legalized this year, potentially, HB 106 presented. 
allows for online sports betting, poker, fantasy gaming, and otherwise in the bluegrass state. The licenses for fifty grand plus a $500,000 application fee, the big boys certainly can't afford it. Retail sports books would be allowed if there is another location within 60 miles of a racetrack, but not physically attached. They have a lot of stuff to work out detail-wise, but believe me, they're on their way. That's 10. Number 9, New York reported a dominant New Year's betting push to ring in 2023. New Yorkers wagered more than $400 million with the state's mobile bookmakers eight weeks in New York. Online sports betting sites in the Empire State, a solid start to 2023. Numbers reported by the New York State Gaming Commission showed $410.8 million in bets handled by online sports books. BetMGM, for example, reported nearly $27 million in handle and $1.2 million in revenue. More to come. That's nine. Number eight. Sports betting in Minnesota could be coming closer and sooner than expected. The push in 2022, Minnesota sports betting proponents follow up with another shot and a cleaner path this next year. Some minor changes, nothing public at the moment, but anticipate initial language being introduced. And as for uh, Georgia, another example Efforts to legalize sports betting tied to a larger gambling expansion package that could include land-based casinos. Online sports betting is set to go live in Massachusetts early this year. The Gambling Commission already having issued the first sports betting licenses ahead of the proposed launch. That package is number eight. Number seven, Houston expects there to be bipartisan support for sports betting legislation meaning one of the white whales, Texas, could possibly legalize this year. That white whale has a very significant uh, revenue potential. The bill needs two-thirds support by the state legislature, and the Texas voters would have the final say if it passes. The legislative session begins the second week in January. Clearly, everybody who used to talk about morals is now talking about infrastructure, an interesting but predictable conversion. That's number seven. Before we look at the top six, let's have our guest for the week. Joe Theismann, an entrepreneur and former star quarterback for the Redskins, commanders now, spent the last two decades working for ESPN and the NFL Network as an NFL analyst, graduated in 71 from the University of Notre Dame, received All-American honors for both football and academics, runner-up to Jim Plunkett for the Heisman Trophy. We'll talk about Theismann and Heisman. He has some interesting perspectives on that. Drafted by the Dolphins in round four in 1971. And the Minnesota Twins. You'll hear about his career, his life decisions. But he was selected as NFL's Man of the Year in 1982. And he was also incredibly charitable. Beyond that, His career ended abruptly in 1985 after sustaining a badly broken leg during a Monday night football game against the Giants on national TV. His book, How to Be a Champion Every Day, was released in June of 2020. But given the DeMar Hamlin amazing uh, evolution over the last couple of weeks, the idea of dealing with a life-threatening injury, how the NFL deals with it, and the inherent violence of football but the positive good that outweighs it is top of Joe's mind. 
And because this is a very significant time, beginning the playoffs, etc., I give you Joe Theismann. Let's go back uh, to uh, September 9, 1949. You probably don't remember the day, but the world does. It's your birthday. And then later on a little bit, maybe 18 years later, you're graduating South River High. In all of those formative years, did you ever think that you would lead the Redskins slash commanders, whatever you want to call them today, to the Super Bowl and be, you know, where you are today? No, not, not at all. I mean, as a young man, uh, I, I was just focused on the neighborhood, focused on the sports in the neighborhood. I grew up in a real small town in South River, New Jersey. Um, I lived two blocks from my high school. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the NFL did a, a football life on me, and I was just absolutely flattered with what they did and had a chance to go back to the high school, see my dear friend, Drew Pearson, who came in. And uh, went, I, actually, one of the things that didn't make the show was I had a chance to go back to the house that I grew up in. And boy, walking in, I mean, the memories just hit me like a, a ton of bricks. The, everything was in exactly the same place. The staircase going upstairs, the dad, the room my dad and I built for me when I got older and, and sort of stopped being in the same room with my sister. And then um, the dining room where I, my grandmother used to chase me around the table, yelling at me in Hungarian, of which I never really understood. Uh, but it was, it was, you know, for us, we had one of the few yards. It wasn't, it wasn't much at all, but it was one of the few yards where everybody would come and play baseball, stickball, uh, football. And, and so it really was a, a place where everyone could come and be together. And, uh, it was really indicative of the community that it grew up in. Well, so good stickball players are learning to pitch a curveball uh earlier than most people in life you decided early on even though you were drafted by the twins that football was your calling yeah i, I made the decision the the road through baseball is a double a triple a and then you know hopefully into the bigs and um i loved baseball still my still my first love i love football but baseball i could sit and watch it all day long i mean people say how can you sit there it's so slow I don't know. Maybe it's just it was me. It was something I started playing earlier than I did football. And I enjoyed the opportunity to be able to uh, to play. And then I I played people. don't And you, Rick, you cannot find a picture of me in a Notre Dame baseball uniform. But I will tell you, I played, I believe, seven games at the University of Notre Dame. We played in a tournament down in Miami. Uh, but you, you can't you cannot find one piece of evidence that I actually did that. But I actually did. And uh, then I got drafted. I thought, you know, I'll, the NFL was something I dreamt about or playing football professionally. And then uh, it just uh, it was, a, I thought, a, a quicker road to get where I wanted to go. And I felt like if it didn't work, I could always go back to baseball. Graduate 71 from Notre Dame, but you graduate with All-American honors in football. Tell me about the academic side, major, and you know how you decided to parlay that and where you thought about that in your life. Well, I, you know, I was I, I wasn't a very I was a good student in high school, good enough to get by like everybody else. You know, there were other things that preoccupied your time. There were the girls and there were the sports and academics was a part of it. And you really wanted to stay eligible to be able to do the other things, I guess you could say. And then when I got to the University of Notre Dame, um, I really had to apply myself. I mean, literally, I went out on two dates my first two years at the University of Notre Dame. Same same girl I went out with. I had a girlfriend back home that, you know, that sort of faded away because we were apart from one another 
but I really focused on my academics at the University of Notre Dame. I had to stay eligible if I wanted to play football. I was one of 13 quarterbacks when I entered the University of Notre Dame. And I was a skinny little kid, 152 pounds. Uh, they had these other guys who were 6'2", 210. I mean, just real physical specimens. Some of them became tight ends. Some became defensive backs. Some became running backs. And they didn't really know what to do with me, so I just stayed at a quarterback position. But I really focused on my academics uh, in college. And like I said, I wasn't uh, that good a student when I entered, but I figured out how to study, and, and they gave me the necessary support. We had study halls if we needed it. And um, I shot a lot of pool. I mean, I just – I really, I, I went to class, I practiced football, I went to the pool hall, uh, and I went to study hall, and that was my life for almost the first two years of college. Now, getting back in directly, now Randy Vitajo, is a friend, says that Jim Plunkett was one of the slowest people he's ever seen in life. Since he beat you at the Heisman, although that's not really the case, it was that West Coast bias. You deserved it. I'm just telling you. Are right. you faster than him? Could you run a race and beat him if, for the trophy? Oh. Heavens, yes. The sun can set quicker than Jim for crying out loud. Um, no, Jim. You know, Jim was Jim was a uh, he was one of the really first. I guess you could say one of those tough guys. I mean, keep in mind he gets drafted by New England, gets the living daylights beat out of him. Goes to San Francisco, gets the living daylights beat out of him, and then winds up in Oakland, and they wind up with two world championships. Um, but actually, you know, Rick, that that was an interesting year in 1970. At uh, all of us coming out of college, at Jim Plunkett out of Stanford, Archie Manning in Mississippi, Dan Pastorini at Santa Clara, Rex Kern at Ohio State, Dennis Dummett at UCLA, and uh, I was at Notre Dame. And it it was a, an interesting group because you know, I guess the, the voting for the Heisman was divided in a lot of different ways. You didn't have three or four. You had six guys that really, I think, were just incredibly you know gifted when it came to the position and played at some great schools that had some great records. Your records... 25,000 uh, uh, yards, in essence, 3,602 completions, and on and on. Obviously, the uh, Washington uh, uh, Super Bowl victory over the Dolphins in Super Bowl 17 and the MVP. You look at all those and 130, 163 consecutive games before the, the, the hit. Uh, what are you most proud of? The thing that I'm singularly most proud of is I played in 163 consecutive football games. I never missed a day of work. All the years I played, I um, with broken collarbones, broken ribs, broken hands, uh, whether I was a punt returner, which I started my career for two years uh, in professional football as, and then went on as a holder and, a, a, like I say, then became a quarterback. But I, I, I prided myself on the fact that I showed up for work every day. And, and I, I contend this, Rick. I see so many young guys today do things that put themselves in harm's way that they can't continue to play in practice. If you want to get better at anything, you have to show up every day and you have to learn something every day. My favorite saying is the day you stop learning is the day you stop living. And for me, the fact that I was able to show up every day, I think gave me a chance to be able to grow at the position, gave me a chance to grow as a person, gave me a chance to grow as a quarterback. I'll give you a classic example. Zach Wilson, who's not really, who's not dressing now for the Jets. Uh, beginning of the season, first preseason game, he's two yards from the sidelines, and instead of running out of bounds, now keep in mind, he's the starting quarterback. He's the guy. He cuts back up to try and pick up two more yards in the first preseason game, hurts his knee, and he's gone for almost a month. I mean, these are the kind of things that are you, you try and impress on young guys is you being out there learning the position on a daily basis 
is so vital and important to you having longevity in this game. There's enough, there are enough people going to hit you. There's no reason to go out and, and try and get people to hit you. Now you see guys sliding all the time, protecting themselves. They understand. It. But here was a young guy who was going to pick up a few more yards in a preseason game when you are the guy. And, and those are the things that, you know, I'm sure he's going to learn going forward now. But, you know, that set him back. And so now he's not even dressing. So it's 1985 and you're on Monday Night Football. Uh, it's the, the turnaway hit that has affected television another way because they showed that hit and your abrupt ending of your career maybe 9,000 times in a two-minute period. And now it's one of those turnaway things where the producer and director will say, we'll show it maybe once, so we're not going to do it again of any similar things. Uh, how do you put that in perspective? Now, remember, this is the guy that played 163 consecutive games, and you do you did protect yourself, but that one moment. So, you know, think, reflect back on that. Well, you know, it's it's one moment. It's that one moment in time. And I agree with you. I think uh, my injury basically changed the way producers present injuries nowadays. They immediately go to commercial for an assessment. And I think it's great for the family members. It's great for the fans. I mean, there's no reason to have to relive that for so many people. Uh, and for me, there, you know, there's an ir ironic part to it because I was there the night Alex Smith got hurt which was exactly 33 years after my injury, almost the same exact spot on the field. Both of our left tackles weren't, our starting left tackles weren't in the game. We were both taken out by defensive players of the year, he by J.J. Watt, me by Lawrence Taylor. Um, the synergy is just absolutely incredible on that night. Alex and I have spent a lot of time in conversation, and thank goodness he's doing extremely well. And you know, he's doing well in television and came back and played. And I'll never forget when they came back and played against the Rams. Uh, I think it was Aaron Donald jumped on his back. And I started to cringe thinking, oh, my gosh, just let him be OK. And he got up and he was fine. And, you know, I think Alex felt like it was ready to go. And I certainly felt that way, too. But that night um, was more than just uh, an injury. It was more than just doing something in the world of television. It really became a point in my life which was very critical because I had become very consumed with my own abilities. Uh, my ego had gotten large. I felt like I was really good. And, you know, this football team was my football team, and I was the one that was the star. And then on that night, I found out that material things in this life really don't mean anything because they can be gone in an instant. And that the important thing is, is that you understand where you fit into society, where you fit into a team concept and what your role actually is. And all we are as quarterbacks is facilitators. We just facilitate, get the ball out of your hand, hand the ball off, make plays, move the ball around, give people a chance to be able to do their stuff. Uh, but like I said, I, I got sort of full of myself. And uh, that night, you know, I just got my feet slammed back down on the ground and, and had to really start over as, as a person. Um, didn't really understand the world of business. And that's what I basically talk about in my presentations is the relationship between the world of sports, the world of business and our own lives. And I wrote a book called How to Be a Champion Every Day, which basically capsules a lot of those stories because uh, my life's sort of been one story after another. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 the uh, elevator speech about the book after having glanced at it, and I need to read it and memorize it word for word. I've been told by a lot of people I better do that or you're going to come after me. You don't uh, need to do that. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Harry, Harry Rhodes tells me I need, I need to do it. So the bottom line of, of the of the uh, the life lessons is 
survive, thrive, and learn from each story as you go forward. I, I think yes. I'm taking away from that. Yeah, that, that is what it is. Is Every experience we have in our life, good and or bad, is something that you have to learn from. And I, I think as, if you're unwilling to look back, I'm not a rear view mirror guy. I like to look forward. But I think you have to look at the experiences that you've gone through to allow you to grow, to allow you to get better as a person, to allow you to get better in the world of business and or the world of sports. So that's, that's why we sit down during the week, in the early part of the week, and we look at the game that we just played. How can we correct the mistakes that we made? How can we be better at what we do? Can we prepare better? That's another thing. Preparation is so vitally important. It's like you and I having a chance to visit. And, you know, you basically understanding what my life is about. And, and to be able to have the communications that that is necessary to grow. Super Bowl winning quarterbacks, meaning Bob Greasy and, and you fall into an interesting category where there's a little bit of lamenting. The kids now, they don't remember me from football. They remember me from TV, from him, ESPN, even his son, from you, ESPN and the NFL Network. Uh, reflect back on those years. Well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> um, you know, thank goodness for Google. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's true. You know, that's I, I tell young people all the time. They look at me and say, you know, I, Who in, are 19, you? in 1982, we won the world championship. It's like, my gosh, it may as well be, you know, 1900. <laughs> yeah. you know, did you yeah. come over with Columbus? Did you, <laughs> yeah. did you sail a ship over here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you get to this? You know, how did it all start for you? But yeah, I mean, you know, like I say, thank goodness for the internet because people go back and look at it. I mean, just the injury that we were talking about, I think has been viewed close to 20 million times. And when somebody gets hurt, it's like, oh, that's like Joe's injury. You know, there's a reference to it. And um, so for me, um, it's funny when kids come up. Yeah, it, and, and this is really interesting, Rick, because people will come up and say, ah, oh, you know, like you were my hero growing up. You were my dad's hero. And then they start to say, my grandfather said, whoa, time out. <laughs> That's just enough. Let's not quite go yeah. that far back, but Sammy Baugh, right, they exactly. do, you know, that, yeah. that's an interesting thing too, is, is that term hero. Um, people are very kind and they come up to us as athletes, men, women, athletes. And they say, you were my hero. And, and it's very kind and we appreciate it. But all we really are is individuals that God gave a gift to. He gave me the ability to throw or run or move around or jump, whatever, whatever, whatever gift is given to an athlete. The true heroes in this world today are the men and women that put on a uniform and defend our country. The men and women that fight fires, the police officers, the first responders. These are the true heroes because, you know, when I go to work, there's not the chance of me not coming home. But yet all these other people that in my mind are heroes are the ones that go out and put their life on the line so that you and I can do exactly what we're doing, sitting here and having a conversation, talking about life, talking about the world. And it's because of them that we're given that opportunity. And that's why to me, when I, whenever I see a police officer, whenever I see someone in uniform, I just simply say, thank you. And you know what, what scares me, Rick, is they'll say so often to me, I really appreciate that. And we just don't hear it much at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, whether it, whether it ought to scare a lot more people is, 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 is left for another day. But I was just going to ask you about the perception of, of athletes and the gift. Now they don't have to be mother Teresa, but you athletes have a platform that not too many people have comment on Charles Barkley's kind of, we're not role model theories. What do you think an obligation of an athlete is relative to 
to giving back, to ma- making statements, to giving dollars to charity, those kind of things. Uh, obligation as opposed to preference, for example. You know, I, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily call it an obligation. It's a choice of an individual to be able to live a life there's a certain way. You want to live a life that that's that's a good life. You care about people. You do the right thing. Um, you know, Charles is very Charles is very outspoken on a lot of different things, um, and uh, and he's funny as all get out. We we spent a lot of time together over the years at the American Century Tournament out in Lake Tahoe, California, uh, and have, have, or Nevada, I should say. Well, they're right on the border, so you can go out of the state. But it doesn't really matter, but. We, um, Charles, it looks at life in a very candid way. And, and, you know, I mean, you have no, there's no doubt where he stands on certain things and the way he feels about things. Um, I think when it comes to role models is you have to just I'd be a good person. That's the bottom line. Just try and be a good person. Try and help people if you can in some way, shape or form. Try and influence people in a positive way in some way, shape or form. And then they can make adjustments. But when it comes to you know, whether you're a role model or not a role model, those are things that people decide about you, not necessarily something you need to be considering as far as thought processes go into. How is the NFL brand looking today, broadly defined? I think it's stronger than ever. Uh, and, I, and I think there's three very specific reasons why the NFL will continue to be the dominant sport um, in this country in particular. Number one, you have the rabid fans. They love, you know, your fans, they, uh, that's their football team. You're ours. They, they, they take possession of you. They don't talk about it as a third party. It's part of the family. You know, I'm a fan of this team. I'm a fan of that team. So you have the fans. Then you have fantasy football. Uh, if you're in an office and let's say you're, yeah, you know, I'm really not a football fan, but everybody's participating in this fantasy football league. So I'm going to get involved. So now all of a sudden you increase the base of fans just because they want to be a part of something. And then the biggest thing, and that's that's come into it in the most recent years here in the last two or three years, and that's gaming, gambling. I mean, you look, look at the ads on television when it comes to, to football games. Look at the ads for every sport. And it's predominantly all the gaming industry, all the different types of uh, ways to bet. So with the fan, the fantasy football and gaming, Football continues to be a very, very attractive product for people to be able to enjoy, get excited about, get behind, and get involved in. That's very well put. You know, Joe Theismann, it's interesting because in the mid-'80s, as a lifetime Dolphin fan, I came back here because of the Dolphins. I couldn't stand you. And now I love you. Thank you very much, Joe Theismann. Really enjoyed being with you. Well, Rick, thank you. I will not apologize for you hating me because I, if, I, if, if you liked me, I didn't do my job properly. There's a long string of people in South Florida who feel exactly the same way, believe me. Well, Joe has some incredible perspective on all of this, as you know, and he evolved from athlete to the ultimate businessman, an Emmy Award-winning talent, entrepreneur, and athlete. That's Joe Theismann. Let's go to number six. Esports looks to continue their fantastic 2022. Romania hosting the 2023 championship. Seven teams emerged triumphant, winning the $500,000 prize pool. Indonesia won three of the seven titles, became the 2022 WE champion nation. Dota 2, Mobile Legends, Bang Bang, eFootball 2023. All of these names mean fairly little to me, but featuring 130 nations, 800 athletes, and a lot of money. 
Look for more esports to continue to dominate the headlines. And will the Olympics be far away? I doubt it. That's number six. Number five, the Cricket World Cup returns to India for the first time since 2011. Most prestigious tournament for a fourth occasion for the first time since 2011. MS Dahoney ultimately triumphant, seeking more glory and more favorites to take the trophy from the home stage and beyond. The 46.5 million uh, units of economic impact is there. And the 2023 ICC World Cup, anything like the one in 2019, India should have huge economic benefits from hosting, and the winner should see an amazing financial boost as well. As number five, what about number four? Salt Lake City gets to host the 2023 All-Star Game following Cleveland's success last year. About 121,000 people attended the event in Cleveland. The Greater Cleveland Sports Commission was talking about the significance of this, the February 18-20 to 20 event. $141 million in direct spending and about $250 million in direct. And about 3,400 news outlets. Cleveland gave major awareness. There will be more in Salt Lake, to be sure. Game broadcast in 215 countries, 60 languages, 223 million views on Instagram, and the same is looking to happen in Salt Lake City with the first time the game returns there after 30 years. That's number four. Number three, franchise values. Huge in 2022. No different this year. No reason to believe we'll see a pullback in valuations. $4.65 billion for the Broncos, the Angels, the uh, Commanders, the Nationals are looking to put together their own packages. Commanders could be worth over $7 billion, and all of the people who are dealing directly with this are pointing to something that is higher than anybody's seen before. In 2022, Apple broadcast MLB games and committed roughly $2.5 billion to the MLS over the decade. The NFL entered the billion-dollar annual contract with Amazon. Sunday Ticket and YouTube adds another $2.5 billion. Obviously, all of this very important as far as franchises. With a $350 million revenue from shared media that we know gets to each team because of the Packers' public valuation numbers, we can see why these high numbers will only go higher. That's number three. Number two, the Women's World Cup returns to action this year, looking to build on a historic few months. Australia, New Zealand hosting the tournament, giving us a glimpse of what the 2026 cooperative uh, effort will look like on the men's side in North America. Fox Sports talks about the event. The U.S. is in a group with Vietnam, the Netherlands, and both of whom the U.S. beat in the last World Cup final, and either Portugal, Thailand, or Cameroon. Brisbane Council Chief Executive says the Women's World Cup will also help Olympic preparations. The economic and social benefits from hosting a tournament like this are terrific. We all understand that. Thousands of jobs, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, both for Australia and New Zealand. That's number two. And number one, it's a positive story that could have gone the other way. Damar Hamlin's tragic industry injury saw the entire league come together 
and the sports world join hands in support. He's making tremendous pro- uh, progress. Love for DeMar. Two kickoff returns for touchdowns <laughs> means that the Bills certainly took it on the field as well. They worried about the health and safety for DeMar Hamlin. And then Hamlin, watching from the hospital, t- tweeted, OMFG, after the first kickoff return. It was unbelievable. An emotional crowd in Orchard Park, New York, burst into cheers and hugs as Bill's head coach and Sean McDermott and quarterback Josh Allen celebrated on the sideline. According to CBS broadcast, the kickoff return for a touchdown was the team's first in 18 years, and he would go on to do another one before the game was over. Listen, the bottom line of this is it's number one in a sports story, in a life story, and everything else you want to talk about. And the NFL is better, not for the injury quite clearly, but for the massive reaction all around the world. Well, that's the 15 to look forward to, 15 to 1. We'd like to thank Joe Theismann for giving us his perspective. We'd like to thank Nick Nielsen for helping put this together. I'd like to thank you for listening and watching and getting prepared for a dynamite 2023 and beyond. I'm the sports professor, Rick Haro. Thanks again for being interested in the $1.3 billion business of sports. Speak with you soon.